And now I'd like to introduce tonight's moderator, Mr. George Lewis. George Lewis has been a correspondent for 42 years with NBC News. He recently retired from full-time work with the network and will be a part-time contributor to NBC's broadcasts. In 1979, he was in Tehran to cover the hostage crisis at the U.S. Embassy. He remained in Iran for 66 days until the government expelled foreign journalists. I am honored, so please give a very, very warm welcome to George Lewis. Okay, I'm going to introduce our panel now. Um, he is the assistant professor and, uh, in the Department of Diplomacy and World Affairs at Occidental College and the co-author of the book, Becoming Enemies, U.S.-Iran Relations and the Iran-Iraq War. A native of Tehran who migrated to Canada at age 15, he earned his BA at York University in Toronto, has two master's degrees from the London School of Economics and Brown University, and a PhD in political science from Brown. Please welcome Hussein Banai. And the woman in the center here, she's the Vice President for Global Policy Programs of the Asia Society, and as such, she recently played a big role in arranging for uh, Iranian President Rouhani to uh, appear at a gathering in New York sponsored by the Society and the Council on Foreign Relations. This while he was in New York to speak at the UN. She's had opportunities to converse with both Rouhani and Iranian Foreign Minister Mohammad Javad Zarif. So we value her perspective tonight. Please welcome Suzanne DiMaggio. And the gentleman over there, he teaches history at, and American studies at Occidental College. He's also taught at Barnard College and Columbia University. Columbia the, is the school where he was awarded his PhD. He's the author of the book, A Renegade History of the United States. And looking at his Twitter feed, he wrote yesterday, tomorrow I'll explain why porn, Paris Hilton, and PDA will win the war on terror. We look forward to that. Please welcome Thaddeus Russell. Well, uh, Hussein, let me start with you. Yesterday in your old hometown, Tehran, uh, crowds <coughs> gathered in front of the former U.S. Embassy to, to mark the 34th uh, anniversary of the takeover. Uh, and we're told that, uh, the New York Times reported anyway, the crowds were the largest in many years uh, and that that sort of helped to bolster the hardliners who opposed President Rouhani's peaceful overtures to the U.S. Can you kind of give us a feel for the dynamics there? Who, who's running the show? Is it the, uh, Rouhani or, uh, and his people? Is it the people who voted for him? Is it the, the hardliners who are out in the streets chanting death to America? Who's in charge? Well, that's a very good question. I think um, there's not a straightforward answer to this. And that's part of the, um, uh, really the enigma uh, that remains uh, to be the Islamic Republic to this day. I think the crowds that chant um, uh, death to America are making um, a, a special um, uh, note of the anniversary of the hostage taking are trying to send a message that no matter how well the negotiations might go with the United States over Iran's <laughs> nuclear issue, uh, that that's a separate matter, uh, a regional matter, if you will, uh, that is quite different from the long-term enmity that exists between the United States and Iran. And this really goes to the heart of the um, what I call the radical tendency in Iran's um, revolutionary posture. Um, taking away the enmity with the United States uh, would deprive the Islamic regime of one of its 
key uh, identifiers. Um, the revolution is built on uh, an opposition to um, uh, imperialism, Western imperialism and arrogance, as it's called by the Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei at every sermon, virtually every sermon that he gives. Um, and uh, there, is so, there is a vested interest um, to uh, keep that enmity going because it provides um, uh, the, uh, the heads of the regime uh, with the reason for their um, arbitrary exercise of power. That's quite something different from what the executive branch in Iran, uh, the office of the president and um, the so-called moderates or um, uh, reformists around him uh, uh, believe. I think they hope um, secretly that this would be a, uh, an opening to normalization of relationships uh, with the United States. Uh, but uh, I think on that front, as I'm sure we'll um, discuss in the remainder of the evening, um, I think they're uh, perhaps over sanguine or too um, optimistic about the prospects for any change. Uh, but what you see on the streets of Tehran yesterday and the kind of contradictory message that you might receive from the official Iranian government in the person of President Rouhani and uh, his very able foreign minister, Javad Zarif, um, are uh, really the, uh, the, the central tension that has marked the Islamic Republic from its inception. So in that respect, things haven't changed much from 1979 when the civilian leaders and, and, and the theocracy were sometimes butting heads over what to do with the hostages. Well, it hasn't changed in terms of um, at the very, I think, top of the regime. Uh, the calculations for the leadership haven't changed. Um, but I think um, if you look at the, uh, the changing demographics in Iran, the fact that um, Iran is a, a far more complex uh, modern uh, country um, uh, today than it was at that time, the fact that there is this um, uh, uh, constant um, uh, scrutiny of what might be taking place in Iranian society on a daily basis by um, not just Western media outlets that are trying to um, portray the regime as particularly evil, but by actually by Iranians, both inside and outside of Iran, who like to draw attention to their lot. Um, uh, we live in a mo far more transparent world today, and um, that, I think, uh, presents a, a new set of difficulties, um, uh, not to mention the economic situation that I'm sure we'll get to, um, that, uh, that the regime has to uh, confront. You know, there's that famous line in Shakespeare that heavy is the head that wears the crown, and I don't think the Ayatollah's turban has ever been this heavy um, throughout the 34 years of, of Islamic Republic's existence. Suzanne, you've met with President Rouhani. You've had a chance to, to talk to him. Uh, ditto the foreign minister. You, you've told me that you actually helped f facilitate some of the contacts that, that led up to these uh, forthcoming talks in Geneva over the uh, nuclear um, question. And I'm just wondering, uh, Pre Prime Minister Netanyahu of Israel calls Rouhani a, a wolf in sheep's clothing and says we, we shouldn't trust him. Uh, do you think we should trust him? And, and if so, does he have the clout to, to give us some sort of diplomatic breakthrough here? I think there's no question that the decider is the supreme leader, right. uh, Mr. Hamane. Hamane. Yeah. Um, but that being said, I think it's really important to realize that Iran is not this monolithic government. I think there is a myth here in the United States that uh, this person makes all the decision, there's no room for debate, there's no room for dissent. Um, in fact, the government of Iran is quite complex. I would venture to say even as complex as our own government. There are various uh, competing centers of power and influence 
And politics in Iran can be a very dirty business, just as it is here in the United States. So I think we need to understand that, that there's lively debate going on on everything from the nuclear issue to whether women should wear a hijab. Um, so that being said, I do think that uh, Mr. Rouhani has come into power in a very unique situation. Uh, he was elected uh, by all accounts, a vast majority of the people. So he came in with a mandate. He ran on the platform of improving the economy uh, and bettering relations with the West, including the United States. And of course, both are connected, because in order to, pr to make um, improvements to the Iranian economy today, sanctions have to be lifted in some way, shape, or form. Um, so right now, he's in a position of power. I think the hardliners have been uh, slightly diminished because of that fact. Uh, his visit here to the United States, which culminated in that dramatic telephone call between him and President Obama, the first such interaction in over 34 years, uh, added, um, I think, some uh, uh, wind beneath his sails. And so far, um, if you look at the last four months alone, we have now seen several high-level direct interactions between Iranian officials and U.S. officials that we have not seen in over three decades. So in some ways, the taboo has been broken. He has broken the barrier to direct uh, communication with U.S. officials. Um, so he's, he's riding in a position of power now. But when he, his team goes to the table to negotiate on the Iranian nuclear issue, this Thursday in Geneva, um, the question I have is how long can they engage in negotiations uh, before that window of opportunity closes? It'll close quick. So they have to make progress very quickly. That's a lot of pressure. It's, it's interesting uh, that w when I was in Iran uh, during the hostage crisis, there were frequently uh, conflicting voices coming out of various parts of the leadership, and I noticed that the same thing is true today. That if you go to the New York Times website, there's a piece that says Iran wants to conclude the nuclear talks quickly and come to some sort of a deal. You go to the LA Times website, and an Iranian official is quoted as saying, no, this is going to take months. So which is it? Uh, I think it's both are correct. <laughs> uh, you know, these are complicated nuclear negotiations. In a conversation I had with Javad Zarif, the foreign minister, after he met with Secretary Kerry in uh, New York, he was quite taken aba aback by what Secretary Kerry told him, and that was that he thought that the nuclear issue could be resolved in three to six months. Uh, he thought that was very uh, quicker than he actually had imagined, but he said, if you say so, let's do it. Um, so I think you know the, the Iranians have brought to the table what I would call a serious package um, and now those negotiations are moving forward. Uh, they're the most fruitful interactions we've seen in quite a long time. Um, my take on this is this, getting to your question of whether we can trust Rouhani and his team, right now we really don't know. But I think that the stakes are so high, uh, we have come very close to military action with Iran, closer than I think anyone feels comfortable with. Because those stakes are so high and the deals and the, the package they're presenting seems uh, serious, we must test that. And we must test that through diplomacy. 
Thaddeus Russell, we're, uh, we're coming into this uh, period with Iran on the heels of the Arab Spring w in which uh, this kind of democracy fervor spread from country to country with mixed results, but largely driven by social media, uh, largely driven by modern me methods of communication. Uh, what's, uh, what are social media, what's the internet, what's, what's all this new openness gonna do to Iran? <laughs> so I mean, I, I wanna say first of all that Unfortunately to me, when we talk about U.S.-Iran relations, it almost always is entirely about the relations between the governments of Iran and the U.S. Um, so that leaves out, in Iran, about 70 million people. Uh, what are those <laughs> 70 million people doing? Um, now, a lot of Western analysts don't have access to the streets of Iran, but we know a lot from what is available from reports. And what we know is that the people shouting death to the Americans in the streets of Tehran are dwarfed by the number of people who have satellite dishes and are streaming in Farsi 1, which is the first Persian language satellite channel in the history of Iran, which is owned by Rupert Murdoch, which streams in all day long and all night long Western uh, and Middle Eastern content, which the Ayatollahs are issuing fatwas against almost daily. Um, just last month, uh, 30,000 satellite dishes were bulldozed in towns around Tehran, which is a common occurrence in Iran. That suggests to me and some other analysts that that means that they are very, very afraid of this new force. It's not so new, but it's, very, it's especially new in the last few years. Farsi 1 was launched in 2009. Um, they know that that spells the ultimate demise of their regime. Their regime requires uh, the repression that we are so famous, sexual repression in particular, repression of women. It requires the repression of things that we know as individual freedoms, which are being broadcast and streamed into people's living rooms all day long. And they're doing this, this is very important, they're doing that entirely voluntarily. No one is forcing them at the point of a gun to watch Project Runway, but that's what they're doing. Um, Paris Hilton is quite likely more popular than Rani in Iran. He's probably, she is quite likely as popular as any of the Ayatollahs in Iran. Based on ratings that we know, based on many, many news reports, you can Google this yourself if you don't believe me, many, many reports by credible people who are saying and doing lots of interviews with ordinary, ordinary Iranians, not government officials, who are saying, that's what I'm interested in. That's what I see as the United States. That's what I like about the United States and I like about Western culture generally. Um, so this is what happened in the Soviet Union. If you look at the history of the Soviet Union and what ordinary Soviets were doing, which it took a long time for historians and analysts to look at, instead of being focused on the Kremlin, from the 1940s through the 50s, 60s, and 70s, it was jazz, then it was rock and roll, then it was blue jeans. It was those things, it was those Western representations of freedom and pleasure that the ordinary people wanted and they simply literally walked away from that regime and it crumbled from within because of that desire for those things. Um, so I think that's what's been going on in the Middle East generally and uh, Arab Spring is only one example of that. However, Arab Spring is often misrepresented in some ways or at least social media and, and its functions there. So yes, it's true that many of the protests in Egypt were, were facilitated through social media, but if you look at what, in fact, there was a great op-ed in the New York Times just a couple weeks ago about this, um, what do ordinary poor people in these countries use the internet for? Do they use it to organize protests? A handful do. Most of them use it for what we use it for, which is to download things that are fun, right? <laughs> so things like 
vi music videos, things like kitten cat videos. <laughs> and it's, this, is, this is funny, but it's actually, I think, really, really important. A lot of pornography, okay? So in a society which is defined in many ways, or at least in terms of the formal society is defined by sexual repression, the fact that you have possibly majority po of the population streaming this in voluntarily says that the days of that regime might be numbered. In your book, uh, A Renegade History of the United States, you say don't overlook the role of drunkards and other ne'er-do-wells in forming this, this great country of ours. Uh, and I think, I, I remember from my time in Iran that they tried to get rid of all the booze. They poured it down the drain. They told the women to cover up. They told everybody, you, you must attend Friday prayers. Uh, I'm just wondering if, if in Iran you see popular culture undermining that sort of strict puritanical view of, of how society should be run, or are, are people able to kind of compartmentalize and, and, and watch Paris Hilton and, right. and so still I'm not, go to Friday prayers and, right. and still say death to America? So I'm not the only one making this argument. I mean, there have yeah. been now, by now, especially in the last five to ten years, several books written about Middle East generally, but a lot on Iran on this very topic. Yeah. Um, many people have gone there and witnessed and interviewed and gone to parties where women are dressing the way they want to dress and they're listening to the music they want to listen to and they could give an F about the rules that they're supposed to be following. Um, it's in many ways the same revolution that happened, guess where, here in the United States, right? I mean, there was a sexual revolution here, several sexual revolutions, that fundamentally transformed a quite puritanical culture, right? So this is a country founded upon puritanism that was amplified by Victorianism, which said just the same things that the Ayatollahs are saying in Iran. You must cover yourself, sex outside of marriage is bad, work is great, family is the only thing, right? So um, there are many reports every day I see reports of this going on in Iran and the Middle East generally. People really just walking away, walking away and walking toward f pleasure and individual freedom. And especially, I think it's very important that women are doing this. Very, very important. Hussein, you lived in Iran till age 15. You agree with that assessment? That are, are, are people <laughs> able to walk away from the, the strict rules? Well, I, uh, at the risk of earning your contempt uh, okay. with that, I, We're still I, friends. I, <laughs> indeed. Uh, I did grow up in Iran. I have to say that that um, um, has been the case from the very beginning. Um, mm. yeah. it's, it's not a novel development. Right. Even during the most repressive um, decade of the uh, Islamic Republic, the first decade after um, the revolution in 79, house parties were going on. Sure. Um, people were drinking. I grew up in a, you know, a, a very westernized um, culture. And this wasn't just you know, the privileged northern Tehranis. We lived all over the um, uh, city, um, the working classes, the middle classes, the upper classes. This has always been the case. Um, the fact is, actually, that um, Iranian culture has this very kind of subversive side, which is that you really um, uh, experience total pleasure and freedom um, in uh, the comfort of your um, home. Uh, and it has oftentimes very little to do with the overt oppressive measures that the government might place. Um, uh, publicly, but um, uh, it is in fact true that um, there is this um, uh, explosion of younger people who are uh, more attuned uh, into um, uh, uh, the uh, the world beyond 
um, Iran's uh, cultural restrictions and, and, the, um, and the red lines that the government has, um, uh, has set for them. But nevertheless, I think we underestimate uh, the degree to which um, the Islamic Republic um, has successfully managed to even dominate those um, uh, uh, relatively free domains. In fact, you know, if you speak to many uh, representatives uh, from the Ministry of Culture and Guidance, um, that is responsible for not only censoring movies, uh, the flow of uh, news, but also censoring the internet, and and from time to time going and um, uh, uh, scooping up satellite dishes or and what have you. Many of them are very savvy. They know exactly what their population is consuming and how much of it they should consume and how much of it uh, might, uh, might 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 go beyond uh, what um, uh, what will be allowable. But the thing that they're most sensitive to are expressions of political. Um, uh, uh, and, uh, uh, and well, uh, a, a chiefly political um, dissent and, uh, and, and oppositional views. And in this regard, the Islamic Republic actually is probably one of the most advanced um, uh, repressive governments um, in the world because it precisely knows how to manipulate um, the, um, the illusion of freedom that young people might have. Um, uh, and to um, have them really get excited about simple pleasures like Paris Hilton and very kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, the mediocrity of Western culture, they're totally fine with that. But the minute you get sophisticated and you might want to have a public discussion about the relationship between, um, uh, um, uh, you know, um, a civil uh, um, a society and representative um, institutions, then that is a step too far. And we see this time and again in works of um, creative art that are created by Iranian artists um, uh, who are very refined, very sophisticated, uh, who are continuously um, uh, held back, imprisoned, harassed, uh, driven out of the country. In fact, one of the most effective um, tools of repression has been uh, the, um, uh, uh, the policy of the Islamic Republic to drive out uh, many of the dissenters. I mean, my generation, my parents and uh, my uh, uh, my, my generation are part of one of the largest brain drains um, in uh, uh, the history of the modern Middle East. Um, Los Angeles is a big center, obviously. Toronto, where my family lives, um, over the last um, uh, 20 years or so, has seen untold populations of very savvy middle-class Iranians um, leaving the country and, uh, and really uh, becoming the pride of Canada instead. I mean, that, the damage that that has done to uh, uh, the culture and um, civil life um, inside Iran is, is really also the, the really downside of this. Um, it's fine, you know, the governments would be totally fine if, if young people just consume that kind of the, uh, uh, you know, the cheapened version of Western culture. They actually have very little trouble with that. But the, the, the core problem for them remains expressions of political um, uh, dissent, um, and they, I would venture to say, are among the most sophisticated um, repressive governments in the world in, uh, in, in manipulating that and in, in keeping a very tight control over the population as a whole. Suzanne, how do you see the role of women in, in Iranian society today? They made some strides in the professions mm -hmm. under the Shah, and then a lot of that got rolled back yeah. when the revolution happened. Where, where are they today? Well. For anyone who's visited a household in Iran, uh, you know, we all know that women are the ones that are really in charge. Um, but uh, I think it's interesting because Iran is a young society. Uh, anywhere between 60 to 70 percent of the people today are under the age of 30. 
Um, if you look at who's attending universities, uh, it's majority women. Um, this is uh, a force that I think ultimately the government is going to have to reckon with at some point in some way, shape, or form. Uh, President Rouhani has said along the way um, that he would like to see uh, less interference in people's everyday lives, including women. Um, he's also said that uh, he would like to see uh, less repression. When I met with him in New York, um, I, one of the questions I uh, asked him was about uh, human rights and particularly women's rights. Uh, his response was that he was in the process of, of uh, putting together some sort of compact or something to advance women's rights. We'll see if that comes to fruition. But it seemed like he was thinking about these things. And any politician in Iran today, if they're not thinking about the role of women, they're crazy. Um, so I think we're going to see women play, um, uh, maybe make more demands on society and their role in society. Uh, the current government uh, has um, named, I think, three uh, high-level positions in the government for women, uh, vice presidents. This, the spokesperson for the foreign ministry now is a woman. Uh, that was met with some uh, consternation, as you can imagine. Uh, but now the, uh, the public face of the foreign ministry of Iran is a woman. But make no mistake about it, there is a long way to go. There, there's, these are only anecdotal uh, maybe directional trends that we might see. Um, but the other side of this coin is the potential for women to, in Iran to uh, advance that society, to help it develop economically, socially. Uh, that's a force that has yet to be unleashed. But as we've seen in so many societies today, um, it's women that are really driving economic development. And I think if Iranian women were given those opportunities and those rights, uh, we'd see the same happen there. Well, Hussein talks about the, the brain drain that's gone on in Iran. Wouldn't one way to ease that be to, to be giving, find, finding more roles for women in, in some of those positions that, that they need to fill? Without question. I think one of the biggest challenges the current government of Iran faces, not just for women, but for young people in general, um, when I was visiting Iran uh, a little while ago, I was struck by how many young people approached me um, with very advanced degrees, equivalents of masters and PhDs. Uh, and they were essentially working, if they had a job at all, uh, it was very menial. They were pushing papers, not using their knowledge. There was a real strong sense of frustration. Uh, no career opportunities at this point whatsoever in many, many fields. So as the universities keep pumping out more graduates and more women graduates, those lack of opportunities, how long will it be before there really is a, um, you know, a real rising up of people demanding change? Thaddeus, I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, Iran versus Israel, uh, because uh, you know, Iran has often said they'd like to wipe Israel off the map. Israel has said, uh, we've got to get rid of uh, the Iranian nukes and has threatened to bomb the place. Uh, you caught some flack about three years ago for a piece in which you, you basically said, I think, that the existence of Israel didn't exactly make us more safe. In the, in the world. I, I, I don't want to misquote you, and I want to give you time to set the record straight. But does the existence of Israel 
make it much harder for us to achieve a rapprochement with, with Iran? I mean, I'm convinced by Huss's argument and his work that there will be no rapprochement anytime soon between the governments of the U.S. and Iran. I don't see any prospect for that. I've been convinced by him and his arguments and other people that, um, even though we disagree about the lowbrow culture, and I'll get back to that in a second, um, <laughs> that it's a, there's a symbiotic relationship between the two governments, that radicals on both sides feed the others, right? They, make, they create a very convenient other, right? When Iran takes a, a radical position or an aggressive position, Washington says, well, now we have to impose sanctions or we have to do something aggressive, um, and vice versa, as Huss was saying. Um, the Iranian radical regime needs uh, a hostile other to, to really justify its existence as a radical regime. So, I mean, I think the relationship between the United States and Israel is a whole other ball of wax. I mean, your question was whether that will make rapprochement with Iran more difficult. Of course. Um, the, the question is what, how the United States policymakers will view that uh, and what we think of that relationship between Israel and the United States. Does the tail wag the dog? Does Israel call the shots on US foreign policy? Some people here think that. I think that's fairly absurd. I mean, if you look at policymakers for dozens of years, they have made it very clear to Israel that US policymakers call the shots. Um, the commitment to Israel and its security and its place in the world, its very existence, so long as that is a commitment of US policymakers, which it will be for the foreseeable future, of course. It will be a chip, a bargaining chip, for the radical regime in Iran with its own people. It will say, see, they do support our enemies. See, they are interested in wiping us off the map. That's why you need to support us and our radical politics and, po and policies. Some politicians like Nixon needed enemies. The Iranians need their great Satans. Exactly, <laughs> right. right. Saying, uh, the, the sanctions have obviously hurt the Iranian economy. Uh, <laughs> President Rouhani talks about trying to get the sanctions lifted, uh, but are they also a tool for blaming some of the internal problems of, of Iran on us? And are there people in Iran who, for political reasons, might want to see the sanctions continue? That's a very good question. I, um, uh, I think the answer is uh, no. I think whatever side of the political spectrum you're on in Iran, the sanctions are not good for you because they destabilize um, uh, Iran's economy, they hurt Iran's oil um, sales, which is its single s biggest source of revenue um, that um, not only helps fund various outfits that are the vanguards of the regime, but also it kind of brings a measure of stability to Iran's political economy, um, uh, which is a staple economy, and, and, and relies heavily on those um, uh, revenues um, uh, uh, as, as, as backup. Um, but the sanctions, I think, um, uh, have, uh, are, are outliving their um, usefulness. I think there, were, there was a period that the institution of sanctions by the Obama administration uh, played a very useful role in um, putting Bibi Netanyahu and his harsh rhetoric of a possible attack into a box. The sanctions played a very effective role in basically scaring the Iranians into um, some sort of moderation, and I think Rouhani's election um, is not at all disconnected um, from uh, the imposition of the sanctions. And you could argue if the sanctions were not put on, that Saeed Jalili, the, um, uh, the person 
that was a favor of the hardliners, um, who was the lead nuclear negotiator and said to be a favor of the, uh, the favorite of the supreme leaders, who was a candidate for president, uh, could have been declared the winner. Um, and uh, but we don't know exactly what the you know the behind the scenes look like. But uh, it did they did produce a very moderate government um, in Iran. Uh, but I think now it's time to discontinue them because the, um, uh, the, the, the economic effect that it's having on the regime may in fact um, begin to serve and play into the hands of the hardliners who have for decades been arguing that the United States is not interested in uh, this carrots and sticks policy. It sticks all the time. That even after we reciprocate with some measure of goodwill, that this continues on. President. Um, uh, uh, George, uh, George Bush Sr. Um, in his inaugural address um, famously said that goodwill begets goodwill. Um, uh, uh, this was related to the, um, the uh, American hostages that were in Hezbollah's possession and the Iranians helped uh, their release. The Rafsanjani government waited for the reciprocation of goodwill and it never came. And um, since then they've been very insistent that the United States only aims at, um, uh, it, its ultimate aim is to keep Iran in a box. Uh, but I think Obama has a very important uh, window uh, available to him to end the sanctions right now to show that yes, the moderation in Iran will have um, uh, some measure of reciprocation on, on the part of the United States. This doesn't mean that all the other reservations they might have about the nuclear program or uh, other things cannot be uh, taken up seriously. Uh, but I think that the Iranians are certainly waiting for that um, uh, signal back from, from the United States, and they should get it. Yeah. I, just, I, just want to say, I mean, there, I'm less of an expert on this than Huss is, but there is a counter-argument about the sanctions, which is that they actually forced people in Iran through starvation, basically, to be more dependent on the ruling class, um, who are, have more access to black market goods and foreign goods generally. Um, just so people know, I mean, the sanctions are actually killing people. Um, there's a lack of medicine. People with cancer and AIDS are not getting medicine now. There's a real desperation, tremendous poverty there, and it's causing, the argument is, and I can't prove it here, but yeah. there is an argument, which I think should be taken seriously, um, which is that it does have the opposite effect um, of what has been called, or what it's been claimed to do, which is to actually push people toward the ruling class and toward a feeling of nationalism and national reconciliation Generally, historically, if you look at that, that's what happens when people are attacked by outsiders, by outside forces. That's generally what happens. If you look at 9/11, on 9/12, everyone had an American flag um, because we were suddenly unified against this outside aggressor. Um, just really quickly, and the rise of Rouhani. There's another counter argument. Again, we n hardly anyone can actually. There's no smoking gun as to why they did this, why this happened. But a counter argument is that Rouhani rose to power, and this reformist regime rose to power as a necessary response to the widespread demand for openness. Um, again, similar to the Soviet Union, potentially, maybe, I can't prove this, but that the rise of Gorbachev was not because suddenly the Kremlin, guys in the Kremlin were nice guys, but because they saw that their entire society wanted access to the outside world and its goods and services. So that could be, again, I can't prove it, but that could be another scenario. Suzanne, you had some thoughts? Just quick, I think whichever point of view you take on the efficacy of the sanctions against Iran, um, and I tend to be persuaded more by uh, Thad's argument, I think now it's become very clear that the sanctions, um, sanctions in general are a very blunt instrument. Uh, in Iran, we have seen it fuel the development of the black market. Uh, we have seen uh, various sectors of the economy 
fall tightly under the grips of the Revolutionary Guards. So there's been a downside to this, there's no question. And of course, the humanitarian considerations have been enormous. But I do think now we're at the point where um, <coughs> sanctions can be most effective when they're lifted. There's no question about that. We've seen it time and time again. We recently just saw it in Myanmar. Um, so I think it's, as I said before, time to test it. And if the Iranians are very serious with curbing uh, their level of nuclear uh, uranium enrichment, um, opening up all their facilities to international inspectors and so forth, then uh, the United States and the West should ease sanctions. Saying you had some thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I uh, agree that they should be lifted. Um, I, I, I want to take special care to note, however, that the, the sanctions that were put in place are, uh, were, for the first time, one of the most um, uh, uh, sophisticated system of economic sanctions direct, directed against the Revolutionary Guard outfits that had benefited tremendously under Ahmadinejad in the eight years that he was president. I mean, there were billionaires popping up with deep ties to the guards, and some of whom are on the docket being tried because they're taking the blame for basically the political corruption and, uh, that, that has taken over the uh, conservative and hardline classes um, in Iran's politics. Um, the sanctions really tightened the noose on a lot of these outfits. Um, uh, I mean, Iran's treasury was being ransacked by uh, some of the most hardline elements within the guards who thought that, rightfully or wrongfully, that they had never been given their due um, after the Iran-Iraq war where they sacrificed so much that people like former President Hashemi Rafsanjani and his cohort of um, uh, kind of neoliberal-minded um, uh, uh, associates had uh, taken over Iran's economy and it was time to basically for them to have their uh, 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 place at the table. Um, and uh, one, uh, there's no question that the sanctions have led to untold misery, um, especially in the uh, area of, uh, 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 you know, as, as, as you pointed out, uh, when it comes to medicines and, um, and, and people who, you know, have their basic sort of um, uh, uh, subsistence on, uh, on, on uh, are dependent on, on, on state outfits. Um, but, but I think one has to also be aware that um, this was, uh, 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 this has had a tremendous moderating effect on the, some of the most hardline elements in the uh, regime that had become so prominent in the last eight years that were threatening to actually um, uh, uh, you know, uh, be uh, the main uh, uh, political contenders in Iran's uh, uh, in the in, in, in the future politics of Iran for 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 years to come. So this opening that was uh, made available, and again, I'm with you. I don't think we can point with um, great decisiveness and say that's what produced Rouhani. Um, uh, there, there's clearly widespread discontent with the regime and people want to have reformists and liberal-minded politicians um, elected, but they tried that in 2009 and um, that, uh, you know, and the, the regime didn't look at them and say, well, it's good to have Museveni become president because clearly the part, level of participation is very high. But they, uh, they, they also learned the lesson that um, uh, empowering Ahmadinejad in 2009 really um, gave a kind of a carte blanche uh, to some of the most unsavory elements um, in the regime, the commanders of the Revolutionary Guard, who, by the way, while Rouhani was in New York and saying all these positive, sending all these positive signals and made the phone call um, or had, took the phone call from President Obama, um, 
the commanders came out very harshly, gave a series of unprecedented interviews, saying that this is you know, um, akin to um, a, a treason, and Rouhani has to be very careful what line he's treading. So um, uh, uh, there's a network of vested interests um, uh, that um, have had benefited really at the expense of Iranian people long before the sanctions um, were put in place. One thing about sanctions that many people don't know about, um, Clinton imposed sanctions through an executive order in the, in the 90s, um, which included sanctions against consumer electronics. Yes. So it was illegal to export laptops and cell phones and all the rest to Iran for nearly 20 years. Um, now, if you are truly interested in liberating a people, that seems like not the way to go. Um, <laughs> I am about to do something I never do, which is say something nice about the Obama administration. Um, I guess it's something nice. I'll just say what they did, which I think is a good thing. They actually lifted that particular sanction in May of right. this year. Um, so now it is legal for you to sell a laptop to an Iranian in Iran. Um, can Iranians so sign on to the Obamacare website? <laughs> <laughs> I think they're the only ones who can, actually. <laughs> well, what about all the other stuff that's going on between us and Iran? I mean, they've got a lousy human rights record. Their prisons are full of political prisoners. Uh, they're supporting Hezbollah. They, they kind of like Assad in Syria. Uh, they're meddling in Iraq. Um, do we have to get a settlement on all of these issues before sanctions go away? No, I think one of the good things about uh, this um, spat over the nuclear issue is that it has concentrated the, in the focus on what the core interests of the United States and the region ought to be and what Iran's interests are. I mean, uh, it's perfectly clear that you know, if Iran were to invade Canada, that we'd be interested in funding yeah. um, you know, some sort of militia that would guard our interests in the Canada. Yeah. Um, that's what Iran has done in Iraq, that it's defending its national interests regionally. I think Iran has actually has had the most responsible policy um, out of all the other Arab countries, uh, all the other Islamic countries in the Middle East, in terms of not overreaching, but stopping right where their interests stop. Um, but uh, make no mistake about it, I think the, um, uh, the nuclear issue, and this is my theory of it, uh, others can disagree, um, uh, from the very beginning, uh, was meant to serve a very particular purpose for the clerical elite in Iran, and that was to, for it to serve as an insurance policy on uh, the Islamic Republic, on the Islamic regime itself. Um, if you look at the kinds of issues that were um, uh, obstacles on the way of U.S.-Iran rapprochement during the Clinton Khatami period, the reformist president who came closest to normalizing relations with the United States. Um, the nuclear issue was not on the table. Iran was not enriching uranium. The United States was not demanding that you know, centrifuges stop or uh, you know, coming up with new intelligence. The nuclear issue was not part of the uh, um, uh, negotiations at all. It was Iran's support for Hezbollah um, and the um, Iran's human rights record um, um, at, at home that were major obstacles. I think those remain major obstacles, but one thing that the nuclear issue has done is that it has changed the conversation from, well, you are entitled to, um, uh, 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 to deal with your domestic affairs. Um, we've been humbled as a result of two catastrophic wars in, 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 in the Middle East, and the most immediate thing that we'd like to resolve is actually a geostrategic issue and not something that would 
um, uh, give the impression that we're interested in regime change and going about and instituting liberal democratic reforms in countries across the Middle East. And that, that conversation has effectively ended uh, for good reason. Uh, but I think the, the Islamic regime should really be applauded for coming up with this mechanism for changing the conversation from regime change to um, really clarifying the geopolitical interests of both the United States and Iran in the region. And they've, they've, they've accomplished that. I mean, Iran has benefited tremendously since the um, uh, uh, Iraq war. And um, it is now finding itself um, in that strange place where it was before the Islamic Revolution, where it was actually a central pillar of U.S. Um, geostrategy in the region. We're going to have to go to questions mm -hmm. shortly, but do you, you have some additional I thoughts? think on this issue, one criticism I would have of the Obama administration during its first uh, uh, tenure, uh, first four years, is that it had an overemphasis on nuclear issue uh, with Iran, all nuclear, right. all the time. And I think the United States missed some important opportunities for cooperation on other key U.S. interests. Uh, uh, places like Afghanistan, for instance, uh, where we did see uh, previous cooperation where uh, the Iranian government helped to bring into effect um, uh, the Northern Alliance to form the new government in Afghanistan. Didn't that cooperation and end as soon as George W. Bush declared Iran part of the axis of evil? Exactly, and I think we're missing an opportunity now. We must bring Iran into discussions on Syria. Uh, I'm convinced of that. So I think uh, my hope is as the nuclear discussions move forward and incremental progress, we hope, is made, uh, I think it's in the U.S. interest to begin um, at least at the margins talking about these other regional security issues that are so vital to our own security. Uh, so, I mean, two things that I, with my students, and by the way, I, the next book is sort of extending the argument of renegade history to American foreign relations over 100 years, so that's why I'm, I'm writing about this now. Um, but, um, I mean, so two things that I try to do with my students when I talk about U.S.-Iran uh, relations uh, is one, again, move it from discussion of the government, right, to what ordinary people are doing. I think that's crucial. And two is move it away from the last year or two or five. Uh, to understand uh, Iranian enmity toward the United States and why they might call us the great Satan and why they might support a regime that calls us the great Satan, you have to begin with 1953 and Operation Ajax when the CIA overthrew a democratically elected leader there, right? And then put in the Shah of Iran and then trained his secret service to torture people with the finest techniques in torture known to man at the time, right? And they tortured a large part of the population over decades, right? Um, and then they gave chemical weapons. Huss did amazing work on this, showing that the CIA and others in, I think, intelligence, U.S. intelligence, actually helped deliver chemical weapons to Saddam Hussein, to Saddam Hussein, during the Iraq-Iran War, which obliterated much of the Iranian population, right, in the worst way possible, right? Those, by the way, are just the biggest headlines, right, in, in the history of U.S.-Iran relations. So, so there are two ways in which Iran has interacted with the United States over the last 50, 60 years, right? There's been us deposing and killing and torturing them and starving them through sanctions, which has gotten us what has been known as called blowback, right? And then there's been this long history, and Huss is absolutely right, the fascination with all things Western in terms of popular culture is not five years old. It began at the beginning of relations with the U.S. Um, which has been greeted with tremendous positive energy from Iranians, right? People really 
seem to, based on how they're behaving, love that about the United States and really not like the other stuff we do. So I think we might want to rethink this and uh, the way we approach the question. Okay. Our hosts are going to give us the ground rules for the Q&A session. Uh, we want to be able to hear your questions. Oh, hi, Allison Ford. Uh, my question is for Suzanne. I'm curious to hear more from you, in particular about when you had that event where you hosted the uh, Iranian leader recently. How was he received? What kind of feedback mm -hmm. did you get from people? Are people saying, oh, how nice, he's visiting us, things are going to go back to normal, and they're going to hit us again <laughs> pretty soon, or are they cautiously optimistic, or how did people react? Well, I think we heard a mix of reactions. Some people were unhappy that, uh, you know, he was coming to town. But I think more generally, um, people sensed something was different. Um, and I think, uh, judging by the interest in that event alone, which was overwhelming, people were interested in hearing what he had to say. Um, having uh, suffered through eight previous years of Mr. Ahmadinejad, his predecessor, coming to town, and every year we would meet with him, and you know, it would just be, uh, you know, you'd ask him a question, and he would respond with a question, and that would go on for four hours, <laughs> literally, um, and you'd never get anywhere, and he was bombastic and um, unproductive. But certainly, I, I mean, I can tell you, Mr. Rouhani <laughs> is nothing like that. Um, but at the same time, I think we have to keep our expectations in check. He did not run as a reformist. He is not a member of the Green Party. He is a, mo um, a centrist, a moderate, the clerical background, very close relationship to the leader. Uh, he is not there to overthrow the theocracy. Uh, he is there to preserve it, maybe make some reforms at the margin, that's my assessment. Um, make life a little better for the people of Iran, uh, improve its standing in the world. I think he genu genuinely feels um, the people of Iran want to be connected with the rest of the world. Um, and I think that's what he's moving towards. But uh, there's nothing he said uh, that indicated to me uh, he's in that position to change the government. Um, so, uh, and I think he made a, a strong case. I think people, it was a combination of people being relieved. Thank God we don't have to hear Ahmadinejad again. But uh, also I think what he had to say was quite moderate. Um, it had a tone, a conciliatory, conciliatory tone. Um, and you know, he came across as someone quite rational. I think he helped to debunk the mad mullah myth that has come to uh, symbolize Iran. Uh, I thought it was interesting in his remarks before the UN General Assembly, he did not mention Israel once. He did not mention 9-11. He didn't say anything incendiary in that way, shape, or form. Uh, and in the business of diplomacy, words matter, <coughs> language matter. So on that aspect alone, I'd give him an A. Question over here on your left. Hi, uh, Jeff, a wonderful panel, another great Zocalo program. Um, I appreciate the uh, richness and diversity of the uh, U.S.-Iran relations that you're bringing to light. I do wonder, though, but what there isn't an element where the new president is, in fact, um, needing to kind of cover or uh, uh, bring up other issues, and that fundamentally, with Iran on one side having been invaded uh, by the U.S., you know, in Iraq, and the other side having been invaded by the U.S. in Afghanistan, 
that there's a significant, powerful core that says, we definitely want to be part of the nuclear club. No ifs, ands, or buts. And the U.S., for whatever reason, especially the Israeli relationship, really thinking, no, we don't want that. And if you think there's really any chance that they truly will say, we're giving up our nuclear situation, our nuclear ambitions, because we think it's such a great idea, what realistically will the pe people in power be willing to do that? Is that for who? Uh, on this issue, I'll, I'll take this um, as a first stab. Uh, the um, government of Iran, uh, I do not foresee them giving up their nuclear program, period. That being said, what I mean by that is nuclear energy program. They will never give that up. They're never going to give up the right to enrich on their own soil. They did that back in 2003, 2005, where they suspended enrichment, and it went nowhere. Um, the United States did not respond. I think that was a missed opportunity. Now the situation is quite different. Back then, Iran had several hundred or more centrifuges running. Uh, now they have 18,000. So the situation is different. Now this has become an issue of national pride and prestige. But what I can say, uh, all the intelligence reports, you know, declassified that I've read, and talking to uh, people that know this stuff very well, um, they're very consistent, uh, whether it's the NIEs or um, intelligence officials that talk on this subject and military leaders, uh, that Iran has not yet crossed that threshold towards weaponization. Uh, there's no doubt they're building uh, their capability to get to that point. And when you visit Iran and look around the neighborhood, nuclear weapons, India, Pakistan, China, up here in Russia, Israel, uh, they live in a really tough neighborhood. Uh, so you can understand why they would want to come up against that capability, and it's a good bargaining chip at the same time. But you know, I think that the government recognizes that if it crosses that threshold, the consequences of that would be immediate and swift. Uh, and they're not prepared to do that. Next question on your right. My, <coughs> excuse me. My name is Keith Scheuer, and my question has to do with Hezbollah. I don't know and wonder if you could explain what the Iranian government's view of Hezbollah is. Is it a sort of foreign agent that works at their behest, not unlike maybe Israel, the American view of Israel to some degree? Or is there real intrinsic pride and loyalty of Iranians to Hezbollah? So whatever, whatever your perception is. Uh, Hezbollah is created by the Islamic Republic. Um, there's a great deal of pride in having created it. Um, it's Iranian Revolutionary Guards commanders uh, make it um, a special uh, point whenever there are heads of Hezbollah visiting Iran or where, when um, Iranian commanders go to um, southern Lebanon uh, to actually display this as a, as a sign of the success they've made over the years. Um, it, Hezbollah functions as um, really um, a, a political party in southern Lebanon, um, quite autonomously from the policies of the Islamic Republic, however. Um, there's a recognition on the part of uh, decision makers in Iran that Hezbollah um, has that right to play as a political party, and they've done tremendously well in creating a, 
really an impressive um, uh, 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 social welfare network um, in southern Lebanon, providing for the poor and the dispossessed and reconstructing a lot of the damage that um, uh, was uh, inflicted on them by the Israelis, but also um, through the, uh, throughout the civil war in Lebanon. Um, and Iranians recognize that when it comes to the domestic politics of Lebanon, that they can function autonomously. Whether there are nudges here and there that you know, Hassan Nasrallah, the Secretary General of Hezbollah, um, uh, uh, should behave in this way or that way, of course, um, his directives may come from time to time from Iranian Revolutionary Guards. Um, but um, I, I want to emphasize that there is a difference of opinion about Hezbollah's usefulness to Iran's regional prestige and global image between um, the Revolutionary Guards, the Supreme Leader, and the civilian government um, in Iran. The civilian government, uh, the, you know, the, the executive branch, tends to be always a little embarrassed by uh, the kind of the overdramatic tone and rhetoric that the Supreme Leader and the Guards employ in terms of their very public support for Hezbollah's uh, martyrdom operations in, in, uh, in, against Israeli ta uh, uh, targets or um, in, in, in that part of the region as a whole. But it is, there's no question that it's a, Hezbollah remains a point of immense pride. Um, it was something that Ayatollah Khomeini had envisioned for it uh, to become this uh, really vanguard of, of, uh, of, uh, of Islamic Shia interests uh, against the Israelis, and it has become that and more. And after the 2006 uh, war against Israel, uh, uh, that uh, has elevated to a new level, especially with the newfound confidence among the Revolutionary Guards members in Iran. We have time for just one more question. This has been a great evening. I want to take the time to thank Occidental College for co-presenting tonight's panel. It was really phenomenal. So thank all of you guys as well for being here. I know some of you traveled a really long, long way. Um, and now time for our last question. Hi, my name is Mike Ronan. And my question is regarding Khamenei and the role of the Supreme Leader. Given that he's getting older, um, how do you think the transition to the next leader will play out? And do you think that this is a point of instability in the government that might lead to some kind of nonviolent transition into a more democratic state, um, or will this just, just become nothing, make no real change? Thank you. I was hoping no one would ask that question. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, that's a, I mean, that's a big, big, um, uh, you know, unknown uh, when it comes to the uh, hierarchy of the Islamic Republic. Um, Ayatollah Khamenei is in good health, all indications are, and he um, uh, uh, will continue to, to oversee um, the, the, the regime's daily activities for the foreseeable future. Um, in terms of the succession, I think you will witness a similar um, process after uh, Ayatollah Khomeini's death, uh, which mm -hmm. is, you know, you have the assembly of experts gathering, the people who are responsible for overseeing the conduct of the supreme leader and, and to also elect a new supreme leader. After Khomeini's death, there was a big debate as to whether um, Iran, that it, no one was as good as Khomeini, whether that position should be scrapped and there should be instead a council. Uh, kind of a Supreme Court almost um, that uh, would collectively um, uh, oversee um, the interests of or the general direction of, of, of the Islamic Republic. Um, but that was scrapped away uh, ironically uh, at the insistence uh, and the machina Machiavellian like machinations of Ayatollah um, Hashemi Rafsanjani, who then would become the um, enemy number one in the eyes of Ayatollah Khamenei. Um, 
Um, so uh, the succession uh, uh, process will be messy. Then the kinds of names that might um, come about as to uh, um, uh, you know, the, who would be best um, uh, fit to replace Khamenei, that's a very, um, uh, uh, you know, that's going to be a very difficult and painful process. The ultimate test of the survival of the regime, I think, will be that moment because there are no clear um, um, successors. Uh, the one or two names that are mentioned here and there, you know, some of them are very, uh, 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 have a very, very, very dark um, a, a report card, uh, Ayatollah Mesbah Yazdi, for instance, who has the credentials to take over a kind of a spiritual leader to Ahmadinejad and that cohort of radical um, uh, 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 revolutionaries. Um, but there is also, and this shouldn't be underestimated, um, we saw this in the Ahmadinejad years, one thing that people did not appreciate about Ahmadinejad was it, the degree to which he and his supporters were anti-clerical. Um, Ahmadinejad really represented a neoconservative civilian challenge from the right against the clerical elite. Uh, he was fond of saying in public meetings that you know mullahs and ayatollahs should be in the seminary, um, and that you know they should be consulted from time to time. But that he envisioned um, uh, really people with engineering degrees, even though some people in his cabinet had fake degrees and all that. Um, uh, 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 that you know, you should have technocrats, um, Islamist technocrats, be involved in the uh, matters of governance, not mullahs. They didn't have that kind of education. It was very condescending toward them. And I wouldn't um, uh, rule out that line of argument uh, coming to the fore, especially if the guards are in a very um, healthy position economically and politically speaking, uh, that they're going to actually exert their influence. And they say, well, maybe it's time that. Uh, that, that we did. But you know, all of this, the fact that there are so many different options and none of them are really good, don't have good, clear answers, tells you about the kind of uh, the ultimate litmus test of the Islamic uh, Republic that might come, come up down the road. You know, all this talk that we say about all these different variables, there are all these you know, black swans that we, mm. we don't quite, um, we can't quite envision right now that may end up actually being the, um, the, the, the fatal blow to the regime. I think this is a big variable in uh, the stability of the regime moving forward. Um, transitions such as this are always bring, uh, always bring a great deal of uncertainty. Uh, I do think that perhaps in the calculation of the leader today, that possibility of a leadership transition combined with the economic hardship uh, the government is facing taken together uh, is a recipe for instability uh, and may have led to uh, a decision at the top to fix, this econ fix that economy quickly. The next leader will be Rupert Murdoch. <laughs> and they don't mark well, 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 do my words. Not, they don't not do Paris Hilton. Smoke, white smoke thing, do they? Paris Hilton's just his proxy. It's really going to be Rupert. And with that ter terrifying thought, thank you so much. Have a great evening. Thank you. Thank you. That was fun.